Take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 4, please. We'll be reading today for our exposition, verses 2 to 6. 2 to 6. Here is what the word of the Lord says, beginning in verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. Let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, what an appropriate theme for us to enter into the sermonic part of our worship as we think about the glorious future, your glorious return, the great Second coming, the great advent, the parousia of the Lord Jesus when the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. And then heaven will be opened and the new Jerusalem will descend and we will enter into the realm of endless days. Lord, what a great and marvelous hope we have. And we're grateful for this text today that Isaiah foresaw all of this. He spoke of all of this. He prophesied about all of this at a time of great calamity, at a time of great tribulation and distress, at a time when all hope seems as if it was lost. And Lord, we have an analogy there to our own lives. Because we too, Lord, at times feel hopeless, lost. We feel the weight of this world. We feel the weight of our our present sin and distress. We feel the futility of our tribulations and our trials, our heartaches, our hardships, our persecutions. And Lord, we need to lift up our eyes and see from where our hope comes from. And so Lord, today I pray that you would do that. You would just inspire hope in us that you would stimulate us, Lord, to serve you in your kingdom. Stimulate us, Lord, so that we can in turn provoke others to love and good works for the sake of your people, for the sake of your glory. Lord, help us today just to discern the marvelous uh, truths that are laid before us here. And we consider the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our deliverer and our future hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. So last week, we looked at point one of verses two to six. And my excuse for that was that chapter 3 really does not reach its conclusion until you get to chapter 4, verse 1 
and 2. Because chapter 3 is all about judgment. It's all about reaping what you've sown. It's all about the whirlwind of corruption that you see in Israel such that the women are finally in chapter 4, verse 1, totally and completely desperate, in distress, hopeless, abandoned, forsaken, left on a heap of ashes because of the destruction of the judgment of God. But in verse 2, we saw that there came an oracle of hope, oracle of salvation. And the way the whole book is laid out, every time that Isaiah brings in some sort of glimmer of hope, it's always messianic. In other words, Jesus is always in the mix. It's always because of Him. It's always because of His future salvation. That phone just took a nosedive right in front of me. Amy, don't be shy now. You feel free to get up and grab that if you want to. Uh, I just can't help but to comment on that. Uh, technology at its best, I guess. Are you live streaming that? That's what people saw that live. That's fun. Quite a sermon. <laughs> All right, let's try to refocus here. The three things and three points in the outline of this text, all of them I've sort of surrounded them around the theme of Messiah, and the number one thing is Messiah here as deliverer, or the messianic deliverance that we see there in verse 2. I want to introduce two more points now, dealing with the messianic judgment and the messianic consummation, but we'll get there in a second. First, remember the messianic deliverance, because the happy future of Zion is bound up to its ruler, to its king, the royal character of the realm that is going to be constructed here before us is that of a royal court, a royal palace prepared for a king. And that, of course, is the Messiah, the Deliverer. Now, here he's introduced to us as the branch. And the branch throughout the book of Isaiah and in other places, for example, in Zechariah chapter eight, or, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, uh, there constantly the, the, the branch is always a reference to the descendant of David who is to be king, but he's also deliverer. And you see that sort of reference to deliverance in the word survivors. You see that in your text, verse 2? The survivors of Israel. That is always going to be code for the remnant. The remnant is crucial for understanding and for interpreting the whole book of Isaiah because the remnant becomes in the book of Romans a reference, watch this now, to the elect. And so the elect of God is sort of embedded in the typology here of the survivors of Israel, the remnant that God chooses, because remember in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 9, very clearly there Isaiah says, had not the Lord left us survivors, we would have become like Sodom, like Gomorrah. So it's all a work of God. It's all a work of His sovereign grace to leave a remnant, to leave survivors, people that He redeems from bondage. And He will be their beauty and their glory. The epicenter of Zion's holy habitation will be in a renewed earth, a renewed heavens. And that's where this whole passage is going. It's almost as if, if you can think in your mind, it's lo- sort of like an intensification of the same cycle of visions going on in Isaiah until we arrive at the total 
a, a climax of that in Isaiah 65, a little ways away from where we're at now. But in Isaiah 65, there is Isaiah's full exposition of the new heavens and the new earth. And from that, John the Revelator in Revelation picks up right there from Isaiah's climactic vision of the new heavens and the new earth and then catapults us into uh, the eternal state in Revelation 21 22. Isn't that incredible how that works? I mean, I, I marvel at things like that. But there's more to it than that. There's a deliverance of the Messiah, but there's more to that. There's also what we can call the messianic judge or the messianic judgment. Because here we learn that the way that this is going to happen is primarily through what the text calls a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. So what is going on? Really three things I want to point out under this. Because this judgment that is being referred to here, this is primarily not dealing so much with condemnation as much as it is with purity and with cleansing, with purging, purifying the people of God. But we begin with the cleansing of the surrounding, what we can call the cleansing of the surrounding wicked. And of course... We understand this by virtue of the fact that it is the remnant that is redeemed. Everyone, look at verse 3. The reference again picks up the theme of the survivors, the theme of the remnant. And now this is what Isaiah says. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. That is the scope of the Messiah of the branch's redemption. Everybody else is purged. And so, with that, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Because I thought, you know, there are many passages that intimate to this and connect to this. There are many passages that develop the judgment of the wicked. We can go to Psalm 1. We can go all over the place. Matthew chapter 24. We can go uh, Daniel chapter 12. I mean, we can go all over the Bible. I thought, you know, let's just go right to it. Let's get right to the issue at hand. And that is the way that God is going to cleanse the realm of glory that He is about to construct before our eyes is at what Scripture calls the great white throne. And this text is ominous. Ominous. It takes your breath away if you just sit and think about it. Uh, I once made a gospel track solely of Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. So I hand that to somebody. Imagine that just lands on you. You pick it up. <laughs> You're just somebody on the street. Some crazy preacher gives this to you. And you begin reading this little card. And this is what it says. Then I saw a great throne, and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name, here's the connection to Isaiah. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I've said this before. I say it again. I'll probably say it for the rest of my life. One of the worst lies the evangelical church has ever believed is that the last thing you want to be in American culture is a fire and brimstone preacher. Oh, you don't want to be that. Not even in the Reformed church. I'm going to shy away from that. Teach something a little bit more fanciful, more trendy, more relevant. Some conversation type preaching. I don't know about you, but right here it talks about a lake of fire. What are you going to do with that? I guess you can avoid it. Then you wouldn't be much of a preacher at that point. See, as far as the world is concerned, as the psalmist says, the wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. They will not partake. In other words, there will come a point in time. Listen now carefully. There will come a point in time where in the church, no longer will the church endure spectators. No longer will you just be able to go and mingle and mix among the saints. There will be a time where the doors, as it were, the doors of the church will be forever shut. We welcome you now. But in the future, you will be excluded. Much more than scary old Mike out there in the hallway keeping you out of the doors of the church. It will be forever shut, closed, locked by the Creator with all His people safe inside. This is why you must join yourself biblically to a local church in a formal way because it corresponds to the way that it is in heaven. You see? And just like the book of Hebrews says, we are enrolled in the church in heaven, therefore we must be enrolled in the church on earth. You see the correspondence? So this is the way that God has designed it. But to Isaiah's point, If you are not recorded to life, you will not see life. If you're not a citizen of the kingdom now, you will have no access to the kingdom later, hereafter. But it's more than that. It's more than that. And I think even more to the concern of Isaiah is the cleansing that happens to the people of God. Because look what it says. Go back to verse 3. It will come about, everyone who's left in Zion, remains in Jerusalem, will be called what? Holy. So there is a coming sanctification. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord has, watched this, washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and has purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst. In other words, here's what's going on. Is that at this point in time, the nation, which was the typological representation of the kingdom of God on earth, was completely perverted. In other words, it didn't match the analogy. It wasn't like the kingdom of God. It had become the antithesis of the kingdom. It had become filthy. It had become violent. The bloodshed. And so God seeks to remove the sin of His people. Now, I want to mention something else here. And that is this. The reference to the Spirit here, much debated, hotly debated, my personal position on this, is that when Isaiah references the Spirit of judgment and the Spirit of burning, I agree with those commentators like Alec Mater and others that would say that should be capital S 
spirit. It's not just a disposition, okay, like an attitude of burning or attitude of judgment. It's more than that. It's more than attitude. It's more than a disposition. It's more than that. It is the Spirit of God who will come in judgment and in burning. And uh, maybe to substantiate that, you could look at Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1 and 2. I think you have pretty much the exact same phenomenon, a very close parallel. You have the branch, you have the Spirit of the Lord, but there it's the capital S, Spirit of the Lord. And then you have sort of the attributes of the Spirit, something that the Spirit does. And so Calvin, agreeing with my position, or let me put it straight, me agreeing with Calvin's position, is that you know the Spirit by what He does. And so in the same way here, Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, it says, after talking about the shoot, the spring, the stem of Jesse, that's the branch, the branch from the roots, He will bear fruit, right? Verse 2 says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Maybe I'm sensitive to this because recently in our Sunday school, I did weeks and weeks uh, showing and, and trying to make the connection between the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Or very, maybe more accurately, how the Spirit of God operated upon and with and alongside of the Spirit of Christ. So, or, or Christ. And so I even titled the study, The Spirit of Christ. Because it's something that needs to be done in theology. How? What we could call the influence of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I could not find but maybe one or two books on that exact subject. But here, what do you find? You find that the Spirit of God will be working in and through the Messiah as the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge. Each person of the, mem- uh, of the Trinity is here represented. Did you catch it? Go back to verse 2. He is the branch, what? Of the Lord. And then you have the branch. And so presumably, there you have the multi-personality of God, representative of Father and Son. And then, entrance, if you accept my view, the spirit of judgment, the spirit of burning. And so there, we could say, Father, Son, Spirit, each one playing and fulfilling their covenant role to bring the world to its intended, indeed, to its decreed consummation. And some of this i got to read it because i got to get it right. And that consummation, amazingly, brought about by the Trinitarian God is brought about for what? For Trinitarian glory. What did Jesus say in John chapter 17, verse 5? Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, he says, now glorify me together with yourself so that I may return to the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Wow. And uh, I forgot where it's in my head somewhere rattling around. Is that Jesus says he knew that he had come from God and was going back to God. Wow. There you go, the pre-existence of Christ right there in the human consciousness of Christ on earth. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he came for. And he knew exactly where he was going. It wasn't like many 
uh, liberal scholars have attempted to argue Jesus was confused about who he was, trying to figure it out, as all of us are trying to figure out who he is. Can you think of anything more abominable? But the Spirit is central to Messiah's work. He functions, therefore, to anoint him, to empower him. He cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Remember? After he goes into his great temptation trial in the wilderness, you remember what it says there? The Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Luke chapter uh, 4, and then in verse 14, after the temptation is successfully passed, what does Luke say? And then, returning back to Jerusalem in the power of the Spirit. You see that? So it's as if the Spirit aided him and guided him, and then after successfully strengthening him to pass through temptation, he now empowers him to return to Jerusalem and to fulfill his ministry. I just marvel at that. At every step, every aspect of his life, his death, his life, death, resurrection, exaltation, the Spirit is always working, always involved in the messianic mission, always But when we think of sanctification, therefore, it is a work of the Spirit. The Spirit will judge. The Spirit will burn, which is another way to say He will purify. But we can never conceive of our sanctification apart from Christ. This just kind of landed on me when I was just deep in the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. I thought, okay, I'm Trinitarian, so I can emphasize the Spirit. It's okay. But I don't want to get too far away from Christ that... He is the one who sanctifies us, you see? And he is the one that sets us apart. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. He is our sanctification. He is our sanctification. You are holy because and by virtue of your union with Him. By virtue of the Holy One. Just remember all those times when you don't feel so holy. That the only holiness you ever had was by virtue of your union with the Holy One. That's what makes you accepted. And that's why the doctrine of union with Christ... Write this down if you've never heard this. John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says and calls the doctrine of union with Christ the most important fundamental doctrine in all the realm of soteriology. That landed on me as a young Bible student as I read that, and I thought, you know what? What's union with Christ? <laughs> Here's a guy saying it's the most important doctrine of the world. I've never even heard of it before. We need to know union with Christ because it is a vital union. And through that union, brothers and sisters, he becomes the power of our sanctification. As we are called, 1 Corinthians 1 9, into fellowship with him. He sets us apart so that we may know the fellowship of his suffering, so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he is the power of our sanctification as well he is the goal the goal of our sanctification and i can read a scripture to you this is second corinthians chapter 3 verses 17 and 18 i thought you know what there is no such thing as sanctification apart from being like jesus christ because what is sanctification what is this agonizing process that you and i are in in the christian life what is this it's agonizing because it's a transformation. It's, it's, it's agonizing because there's a conformity going on. And because of our in, remaining 
pollution of sin, we fight that process. We kick against the process. We are not perfected in the process yet. And so that process at times can seem extremely arduous. And so Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But this is the point. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, and being transformed, there we go, into the same image from glory to glory, literally one degree of glory to the next, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And so here, Christ's Spirit sort of functioning as one to produce the necessary transformation is how He is going to prepare us for heaven. What is Isaiah teaching here? It's this simple. He's teaching us what is necessary to bring the kingdom of God to its consummate end, to its fulfillment, to the finale, to the goal, to the finish line. How will he do it? Well, first, he needs to ready the people. He needs to cleanse the people. I don't know that I'm giving it to you in extra exact order, you see, but, but these are the things that, these are the components that need to take place. Messiah must cleanse. And then Messiah must consummate. And that's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking at. Zion, therefore, having been so consecrated, is now shut as we've spoken. Nothing that does not belong will ever come in. No foreign army. Think about being in the 7th century B.C. You're there. You understand everything Isaiah is talking about with terms of the invasion of the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Right Later, the Medo-Persians will become a threat. And through that, God's going to use that to deliver the people to go back into the land. And then will arise another great cosmic power, namely the Roman Empire. And so throughout the history of the people of God, they have faced these great cosmic powers that are representative of God's enemies. But in heaven, there will be no enemies. There will be no serpents. There will be no dogs. The Zion city will not tolerate anything that will be unclean. i got scriptures for you. Revelation 21, verse 27. Nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever enter into it. But only those, here we go, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you did a study of the book of life, Let's say you looked up an encyclopedia on theology, okay, like the IVP Dictionary on Theology or something like that, the Anchor Bible Dictionary of Theology, and you looked up the Book of Life. I tell you, they would make a roundabout line back to Isaiah's, those who are recorded for life. In other words, germanely, they are the same. They are tethered together. In other words, what was actual uh, historical in Isaiah became redemptive historical in the theology of the New Testament as it develops so that we find out, oh, those who are actually recorded for life are those ultimately who belong to the book of the Lamb. To the book of the Lamb. Revelation 22 verse 11 says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Wow. What is John saying here? And the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. What is he saying? There's coming a time where people's fate is fixed. 
those who were filthy unto the end of filthiness, those who were righteous unto the end of righteousness, either life to life or death to death. And then, on top of that, we have to think about Zion's environment. That's really almost focusing on Zion's people, cleansed. But what about Zion's environment? You see, just as God moved systematically, think about last sermon, to literally dismantle the nation represented by the filth of the daughters of Zion as an act of what we can call a decreation, so too God is now methodically restoring Zion in an act of glorious recreation. And matter of fact, uh, even more to this, as we'll see, um, God actually, in Isaiah here, uses the same word as in Genesis. When you think of creation, where do you go in your mind? Genesis 1. Because it says, in the beginning, you know, Bereshit bara Elohim hashaim. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so bara is the same word that Isaiah is using here that's used in Genesis. Where it says in verse, where is it now? 5. Then the Lord will create. You see that? He will create over the whole area of Mount Zion. So here, there is some sort of revisitation to creation. Only it's a new creation, a better creation, a glorious creation. It's like God is going to, after, by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, He has removed all of the fallen environment of Zion, now leading to a new environment, a whole new realm of Zion. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says the world, this world is passing away. The form of this world, the people of this world, the things of this world, the lust of this world is all passing away. And along with it, brothers and sisters, the kingdoms of this world, the Christless nations of this world, together with their cultures and their morals and their religions and their spiritualities will all be done away with. But as one world is removed, another one is being fashioned. Another one will emerge, a new world, a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, as Peter says, wherein dwells righteousness. Now, notice that the rest of the text, the rest of the passage here, no longer says anything about the moral quality of the realm of Zion. Now, the focus shifts to the celestial glory of the heavenly mountain city as we consider Jesus Messiah in His consummation when He brings everything to its intended goal, which is to heavenize the whole world. And those of you that were in the Klein group, you might think like I sound like a broken record, but it's Isaiah's fault. He's repeating the themes that we looked at there on Friday. So let's think about that. Let's go back here now. Look at verse 5 with me. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over all her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, the brightness of a flaming fire by night. And over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day, a refuge and protection from the storm and from the rain. Now, if, if you're keeping your eye on the ball, and if you know your Bible, then much of what I just said right now is sort of reminiscent. It's sort of it recalls the language of the Exodus, does it not? When it talks about the assembly, the mount, 
talks about the cloud by day, talks about fire by night. I mean, that's exactly what happened during the Exodus event. And that's what's going on here is that uh, Isaiah is picking up the themes of the Exodus and using them to show that there is a greater Exodus coming. There's a greater creation. And just like in the Exodus, follow with me now, as they were delivered from the land of Egypt through the Exodus, then they went through the wilderness, and as they passed through the wilderness, they entered into Canaan. Entering into Canaan was symbolic of obtaining their inheritance, obtaining Zion, right? We're in the same trajectory, brothers and sisters, you and I too. Once again, aliens, strangers, sojourners, pilgrims on this earth, traveling through a strange land until we reach our heavenly shore. So all of Old Testament history becomes, if you would, New Testament theology. It all matters. That's why it matters. But you know all this because I've said it to you many times. Some of you. (laughs) That having been cleansed morally... The kingdom is ready for creation, only it's a new creation, having become the faithful city that Isaiah talks about in chapter 1, verse 26. Zion is now ready to be the glory city of God. This is so wonderful. In developing these Exodus themes, we now get to see more of the redemption of the Messiah, of Christ Jesus, as He moves everything as a, into a new Exodus, as a new Exodus leader. Conversely, it also supports the notion that the entire Exodus event was typological of the final eschatological deliverance of the church. And so it is no surprise to find in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, that the authors of the New Testament view the church as a newly constituted people of God, as a newly constituted Israel of God. And that's what Paul calls the church in Galatians 6, 16. Peace be on those who follow this rule and the Israel of God. And what does Peter tell those who are in Gentile territory, those Christians that he's writing to? He calls them a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation. You see that? Uh, You understand there's a big fight today in the church in evangelicalism versus dispensationalism and covenantalism, reform theology and everything else, because what reform theology has taught throughout the centuries uh, has been that the church is not a replacement of Israel. Uh, You'll hear that language among dispensationalists, replacement theology. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Well, that's kind of like a cuss word in the conversation because it it poisons the well. It makes you think that what God did to the nation of Israel was not important. The promises that he made to Israel are not important. They'll never be fulfilled. But it misses the entire purpose of the nation of Israel. It misses the whole character and nature of the people of Israel, that they were mainly typological. That they were symbolic of a greater nation, of a greater people, of a greater race. And therefore, you have to be covenantal. (laughs) Because that's what the Bible seems to teach everywhere. It's kind of like Calvinism when you first see the doctrines of grace. You start seeing it everywhere in your Bible, right? It's kind of like, where was I all that time? (laughs) It's the same thing when you think of the covenantal angle. You start realizing, oh, this was the... This is always the point. I mean, this is the whole purpose of the nation of Israel and its existence. Really remarkable. 
But as we think of this consummation, the typology, what it means, and all of that, where it's headed towards is what we could call a glory realm. Notice the language, what he says. He says, notice the added, the, the added commentary. Okay, so, so if, you, if you're a student of the Bible, you've heard of mountains. You've heard of clouds. You know what smoke refers to, what the flaming fire by night is indicative of. But then I believe Isaiah adds a little bit more here to further the theology of all of that further along. Notice what he says. Over all the glory will be a canopy. And for us, it's kind of like, huh? What does that mean? So in our minds, what we think, is it like Asgard? It's going to be like, I mean, what, what, like a big old dome? I mean, what are we talking about here? And I would say, hey, man, you know, let your imagination run wild. But at the same time, you know, stay true to the text. <laughs> you know, I say that because, like I was telling Trish, you know, like, you know, God wants us in a sense to just to let ourselves imagine, you know, to be enthralled with, with it, right? It's just kind of like the disciples on the road to Emmaus is your heart burn for the story. And to me, it's, it's, it's marvelous. I, I, it, it, it just really has taken me in, in, in fresh directions. Biblical theology has done so much for me. Uh, but uh, when you think of this glory canopy, that's what it is. Several things come to the fore here. Number one, when it says that there will be a glory over all the realm here, right? There, there will be over, let's say here, there will be over all the glory a canopy. Uh, Isaiah uses the Hebrew word here, huptach. Huptach. And huptach is an interesting word because it's not as easy as, oh, that's what he means. It's a little bit more variegated than that. And I think he used it for that reason. Because lexically, if you look at uh, Driver and Briggs, if you look at the Chaldean uh, lexicon, if you look at Holiday's lexicon, if you look at these great lexicons in the Hebrew text like I did, what emerges is sort of a manifold meaning, sort of dependent and contingent upon the context. I'll come back to that. First, number one, for example, the word huptach can mean covering as in a roof. It could also speak of a pavilion like in a porch setting. And here's where it gets interesting. But it is also used, Psalm 19, verse 5, Joel chapter 2, verse 16, it is used of a bridal chamber. Of a bridal chamber. If you have a King James, the King James translates it, over all the glory, there will be a defense. Emphasizing, in a sense, more of the purpose or the function of the hooptah. And so what gives? I think it's a combination of the, of, of the meanings. And I'll get to that in a second here. But the, the, I think what emerges here, therefore, is the imagery of God intimately in fellowship with His people, in bridal celebration as they come to commune with Him and feast with Him in worship, in divine love. I, I think that's what we're supposed to get. Second, Isaiah is careful to note the scope of the glory. Over all the glory, so as far as the glory goes, that far the canopy will extend. That far will be the realm of communion, of love, of fellowship with God. That far the realm will be protected by the glory of God. 
Just amazing. I, I'll share this with you because you're my church. I love you. And, and uh, you, you know, I, I'll share my insights with you, okay? No judgment. But I was in family devotions the other day with Trish, and something landed on me. I was telling Pastor Lynn about this. And I thought, you know what? I was reading. Uh, oh, I read this for family devotions. I use my family as you know, that, sort of like a, a guinea pigs for my sermons, okay? But anyway, so I got to this, and I thought, you know, this sort of canopying phenomenon over all the realm of glory. And then something hit me. Whether it's right or wrong, I'm not sure yet, but I think I'm on the right track. And I thought to myself, the mist. The mist in Genesis chapter 2, verse 6. You ever wonder why in Genesis chapter 2, verse 6, there's a reference to a mist that rises above and it covers the whole realm of Eden, watering, nourishing the whole land? I always thought, okay, that's interesting to me because I know one thing for sure. The tree of life, the river in Eden, the precious stones, all of those things have typological significance into the new creation. How do I know that for sure? Because Revelation 21 and 22 mentions the Genesis text. No question that that river was picked up by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 47 indicative of eternal life as Ezekiel sees himself literally swimming in the river of life. That is then picked up by Jesus, that he is the one who supplies us the river of life, if you would, the water of life, right? And then that is picked up by the book of Revelation. Uh, I know for certain Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, picks that idea of the living water clear as crystal, you see? And so these Genesis themes mean something cosmic and eschatological and so i am i am tempted to say maybe that's the purpose of the canopying mist that covers the whole sanctuary of god maybe you guys study out come back and tell me how right it, or, or how wrong i am <laughs> very dangerous expositionally what i just did but i trust you what do we do with all of this i'm sitting here going If this glory canopy is so far out of our reach, why is Isaiah telling us about it? What can I do about it? I'm down here. It's not glory everywhere. It's sin everywhere. It's chaos, destruction, sickness, and death. That does not stop Isaiah from taking the reader deep into the glory realm to explore and to marvel at the world to come. And so, brothers and sisters, I say to us, do we explore and do we marvel at the world to come? Or have you bought the lie? You don't want to be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Because that is a lie from the pit. We want to be heavenly minded. We want to be. We want our thoughts there. It's our hope. It's our hope. Now, as we consider the total picture, this is what emerges. Don't lose me. Stay with me here. The glory of God here is presented by a glory canopy. This temple pavilion. A roof overhead covering and sheltering the house of the Lord, Zion. And it takes on the function of a cosmic bridal chamber where the bridegroom lamb and the bride church 
consummate their holy union. The foundations of this imagery stretch all the way back to the creation account in Genesis as the Spirit of God fashions the cosmic temple here, down here in the lower world and is seen hovering over the cosmic structure that we call the universe. Later, it's represented, the Spirit that is, by the clouds of the firmament as well as the Exodus event where the same sheltering presence of God is seen. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy 32 verses 10 to 11 uses the same language as the Spirit who hovers in Genesis as the Spirit who hovers in the Passover event. God who hovers over them. That language is amazing because creation and Passover both have in common the concept of shielding, protection, and guardianship. Listen now. God is brooding over His people in avian imagery. That is like a bird, like, a, like an eagle. And that imagery in the Bible is nothing new. Exodus 19 verse 4, Psalm 91 verse 4, there God is called as, one, as the God who has wings. He spreads His wings over His people and He hovers over them, protecting them. What a marvelous, marvelous image. But in the prophets, this avian imagery, listen now, becomes prophetic parlance, language of the eschaton, as God will protect and hover over His people as they shelter under the wings of the Almighty in the realm of glory, heaven. Heaven. The redeemed will take refuge inside of this canopy, and that refuge is redemptive in nature. That is what Isaiah is adding to all of this. That it will be through the redemption, you see, The redemption, just like Exodus was redemption, so too in the final picture, those who are redeemed will shelter safely inside. Having been redeemed by the branch, they will come to the branch for sweet repose, refuge, and rest. God throws His tabernacle over us. That's what this is. Turn with me in your Bibles to two places. Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. Here we go because uh, as we draw things to a close here, I don't want to neglect teaching you systematic theology here, particularly in the area of eschatology. One of the reasons why I'm all millennial, meaning I believe the millennium is sort of a metaphorical time period, not a literal thousand years coming to this earth. Okay? Um, one of the re- arguments there is this right here, is that you have a parallel of two texts, Revelation 7, Revelation 21. Here's the problem. Revelation 7 is talking about the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 21 is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. If you are a premillennialist, what you will argue is, yes, but chapter 20 is before chapter 21, and in chapter 20, that's where John talks about the millennium. It's only one problem. In chapter 7, John says that the same conditions as the, the new heavens and the new earth transpire at the parousia, at the second coming of Christ. So how do we go from second coming to new heavens and new earth 
dawning in that moment, uh, how do you squeeze a thousand years in between that? You see what I'm saying? So that's just one argument. You see me afterwards if you want to talk. I'd love to talk about that. But look at this marvelous text. See, this sort of wraps everything up of the symbolism, this divine protectorate, this holy communion cast in the language of a canopy, cast in the language of a tabernacling presence of God. Verse 15. Revelation 7:15 For this reason they are before the throne of God and they ser- uh, who are before the throne of God those are the tribulation saints the saints who have just passed through tribulation many of them martyrs it says they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne watch this now he will spread his tabernacle over them Interesting. I would say that's sort of the same phenomenon we have in Isaiah. Why? Because look at the same phenomenon. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. Nor will the sun beat down on them. The same Exodus language, right? Nor any heat. And man, Texas, Texas can use a little of that right now. August. It's terribly hot outside. For the Lamb is the center of the throne. He will be their shepherd and will guide them where? To the springs of the water of life. And God, here it is, Isaiah 65, new heavens, new earth language. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, turn to Revelation 21, verse 3. For again, I believe, a parallel and similar phenomenon. It will be... Sort of parallel to what we just read. Ready? Revelation 21, beginning of verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, there it is. The tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. They shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. That's the entire purpose of the Bible. What Meredith Klein calls the Emmanuel principle. Right? God with us. That is the whole purpose of it all. And it says, and he, again, look at the parallel, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Just like in Isaiah chapter 4, he wipes away the first things before he recreates the new things. You see? And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. The reason I'm reading is here. Then he said to to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my Son. It's exactly what Revelation chapter 7 just said. Tabernacling over us, shielding and protecting us, giving us of the spring of the water of life. Exactly what he's saying here is exactly what Isaiah was saying in Isaiah chapter 4, later developed throughout the entirety of the book. I want to end on a very practical note. If you go back to Isaiah, I want to end on a rather practical but a rather God-centered note. And it's this. Notice the language. Don't miss the metaphorical language here because it ministers to us. There will be what? Shelter. 
shade, refuge, protection. I thought, how good it is of God. There's my application. How kind of God to give us shelter and to protect us, to satisfy us, to give us a refuge, to shade us from the sun. And once again, as we think about all these redemptive themes, the application, as simple as we want to make these, they are still made meaningful in Christ as Revelation makes clear the goodness of Isaiah's shelter and shade and revelation are only and forever realized through Jesus Christ who brings us through the harsh surroundings of tribulation and the sweltering trials of the present evil age to the sweet refreshment of His presence through the cross. That's how we are sheltered. That's how we are shaded. That's how we find satisfaction in Him. It's because He bore the penalty. He bore the shame. He passed through the Red Sea of death for us so that we could safely get to the other side and reach Canaan's shore and lap the water out of the river of Jordan. You see, Jesus taught that man knows that the greatest storm and the greatest rain Taken right here from Isaiah, right? The greatest storm and the greatest rain. The greatest storm is the storm of judgment. The greatest rain is the torrent of the wrath of God. What's the point? Build your house on the rock. What is the rock? Jesus said, my words. Let's pray. Father, today... So many people in this age are second-guessing His words. They are trifling with His words. They are minimizing His words. Or they are outright rejecting His words. But we know and we understand now that if we do that, we have no protection, no shelter, no refuge. And when the storm of judgment comes, when the torrents of the wrath of God descend upon us, we will have nowhere to hide. And so, oh God, we are so grateful for the branch. We are so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that in the cleft of the rock we can hide. Isaiah later will talk about there is a man who will give a shade. And we're so grateful that he it is, that it is none other than the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the branch of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, who poured himself out to death so that we can hide safely inside Lord, and for all of our days, every day, every moment of every day, may we continually seek our refuge in Him. Help us, Lord, not to be deceived on the way. Remembering that the children of Israel, they were deceived on the way to the promised land. Help us not to be deceived, not to go to other things, not to question the Word of Christ, but to trust in Him 
to seek our sustenance in Him, to find our all and all in Him. Give us faith, O God. We pray with the disciples, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.